Well, we are concluding this morning our sermon series in Genesis. It's interesting uh, how people react to the book of Genesis. The reality is that when most people think of Genesis, they think of the first two or three chapters. As we've gone on this journey over the last year, one of the things that I've heard from a number of you is you've commented on how the account of creation in chapters 1 and 2, really seems like a small part of the story, a small part of the emphasis of the book. Once you read through and and, uh, discover the entirety of what God is doing in Genesis. In fact, if you look at the real estate of Genesis that's designated to creation, it's about 3% of the book. So 97% of Genesis is telling the story of what happens after human beings are created. I subtitled the series, Creation, Blessing, and Promise. And I've worked hard to emphasize that creation and conversations about creation actually aren't the central emphasis of the book. It's an important part of the book, but it's not the main idea of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 establish quite clearly that God is the creator of heaven and earth, and that God has created and and continues to sustain all things. And and then begins the narrative of God's redemption, and that's really the central emphasis of Genesis, the narrative, the story of God's plan to redeem. Another thing you might have noticed uh, within our time in Genesis is the presence of different types of writing. For example, when you read Genesis chapter 1, particularly when you see it laid out on paper in your Bible and organized into sections, you'll notice that it is poetical in nature. It's written in verse form. There's consistent structure and refrain, like, and God said, beginning each of the sections, and then the phrase, and there was evening and morning, ending each of the sections, and and you have other poetical consistencies like the phrase, it was good, that's repeated over and over. But then we turn uh, forward several pages and we see that sections that are clearly what we might call historical narrative, and other places, what seem to be extended quotes from some ancient writings and documents, and then there are genealogies and the accounting of generations We have some sections of Genesis where there is tremendous, almost laborious detail. And then other sections where we skip forward years, decades, or even centuries within the same paragraph with almost no mention of it. One of the things that I hope you were able to observe is that Genesis is not just history. It is history, but it's not just history history. It's really a theological shaping of history. It's a, you might think of it this way, a retelling of history as part of a specific agenda and purpose. I have a bachelor's degree in social science education, and I spent the first 15 years after college working with some involvement in Christian education And so I've been around a few history textbooks, and if you've ever read a history textbook, most of you have, I would assume, or if you've read any historical nonfiction work, 
of any kind for that matter, you know that every one of them is actually just one perspective, one slant on history, developed with a certain agenda, a certain goal, or at least uh, particular priorities in mind. Every author, every editor, every researcher has a certain emphasis that they want to convey in their work. For example, I would guess that that all of us have read and studied from textbooks that detail the history of World War II. And many of us love World War II history. I do. The heroic actions of the American GIs, it's great history. But one thing that you may have noticed is absent from most uh, history textbooks regarding World War II is, one example might be the the prevalence of prostitution that took place among American troops in both theaters. We don't tell that part of the history very much. Another example might be the the relative lack of attention given to the internment of Japanese Americans during the war. Or what's even more fascinating, particularly in this part of the country, is the difference in treatment between Japanese Americans and German Americans or Italian Americans during the war. There's a lot of unique nuances, angles, perspectives on history, and every work of history is presenting its facts with a specific emphasis, or we might say agenda, behind it. And the same is true with Genesis. Genesis doesn't even attempt to be a thorough historical work. In fact, there are a number of stories that are included in Genesis that have almost no true historical significance. Genesis is a theological shaping of history. It's a collection of stories and events and conversations and dreams and failures and sin and faithfulness that all work together to lead us in a certain direction. To give us one particular slant on what happened in history. I might express the purpose, the major emphasis of Genesis in this way. Uh, That Genesis lays the foundation of God's creation, of our sin, and of his gracious and faithful plan to save. And it also introduces us to major building blocks, to the major components of the Christian faith, including topics like faith, justification, covenant, and redemption. Genesis lays the foundation. And so as we conclude our time in this series, I want to draw your attention back to that subtitle that I gave to the sermon. The subtitle was Creation, Blessing, and Promise. And rather than try to recap 50 chapters this morning, I want to explore how these three words... These three major themes that run throughout Genesis find their fullness not in Genesis alone, but really in Christ in the New Testament. And so let's look first at the word creation. I'll summarize it this way. God is the creator of all things, and his redemptive plan will culminate in the new heavens and the new earth, or the new creation. As you'd expect on a sermon wrapping up an entire year in a 50-chapter book, uh, I'm going to be jumping around a little bit this morning as I tie together some thoughts from God's Word. And so we'll begin by reading the first words of the book from Genesis chapter 1. 
Genesis chapter 1, words that we all know. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. As we follow through this theme, this introduction to the scriptures, into the New Testament and ultimately to the end of the scriptures, we see that there's tremendous consistency. This isn't just an introduction. This is a a theme. These are words that, that we can trace throughout the scriptures from beginning to end. For example, in John chapter 1, passage that many of you are familiar with, John's sort of retelling, reframing of creation. John wrote these words, John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, in the beginning, sounds familiar, was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and then hear this, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so in the Gospel of John, we get a different slant, a different perspective on creation. It's really creation from the perspective of Jesus. And John says that when we read about that light in Genesis chapter 1, we aren't only supposed to understand it in terms of physical light, but we're supposed to see Jesus, John says, in Genesis chapter 1. It's exactly what John is saying. He's saying when you read Genesis 1, you're reading about Jesus. When God said, let there be light, that's intended to point our eyes and our minds and our hearts to Jesus, to the true light, that he is the one through whom all things were created. But, but of course, the, the creation narrative continues in the New Testament, and we can follow it through all the way to the end of the scriptures. Revelation chapter 21, I'd encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 21 as we hear these words. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Wait a second. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. Revelation 21, then I saw 
a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And then if we jump down to verse 23 of Revelation 21, we we read this. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. Do you see what's what's happening here? The old order of things has passed away. When we look at the end of the story, we get this glimpse into the end of the story and we see that the curse will be reversed. The glory and goodness of that very first creation when everything was very good and the mankind Erected, it will all be restored. The curse will be reversed. In Genesis, we see just enough of the glory of God's creation. Just enough to understand how devastating sin was and is. And then the whole purpose of, of every word that follows in Genesis, the, the whole purpose and the rest of every word in the rest of Scripture is to, to lead us and point us toward that moment at which Christ will return and bring to completion his recreative work. The story of Noah, the rescue of Lot from Sodom, Abraham and Isaac's sacrifice on the mountain, Jacob wrestling with God, Joseph sold into slavery, every moment of the story leading us, pointing us in the direction of the one who would come to redeem and restore all things in accordance with God's good plan. The creation account in Genesis isn't intended for for argument or scientific analysis, but it's intended to give us Jesus, the true light, to point us to, to the one who will come to recreate all things. God is the creator of all things, and his redemptive plan will culminate in the new heavens and the new earth. The second word that I want to focus on this morning is that word blessing. Turn to Genesis chapter 12. God uh, speaks, God calls Abraham. Listen to these words starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you, And then hear these words, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God makes his covenant with Abraham and and at the very 
center of that covenant, if you didn't hear the repetition, the very center of God's covenant with Abraham is the word blessing. Shows up five times in those three verses. I will bless you. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And what's so helpful, I love it when scripture does this for us, the Apostle Paul in Galatians tells us how we are to understand those words. He opens up Genesis 12 for us and says, here's what it means. And so turn over to Galatians chapter 3 and listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He's going to tell us in these words that the gospel is announced to Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Paul writes these words, Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel, the the good news, in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then skipping down to verse 14, it says, He, speaking of of Christ, redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's us, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. What does that mean? The blessing found all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Paul says, That blessing is the gospel. It's the good news that all who have faith in Christ will be justified, will be made right with God, will be declared not guilty of their sin. God's blessing promised to Abraham becomes ours by faith. And this is why seeing the big picture of Scripture, the overarching trajectory of Genesis is so important for us. God is speaking to Abraham, but it isn't just about Abraham. It's about you and I as well. And what's the main idea? What's the the main purpose, the big deal about all of this blessing that God speaks? It's not blessing as we often think of it in a material sense. The core of this blessing, as Paul says in Galatians, is the opportunity for mankind to live in right relationship with God. To have our sins forgiven, to know and be loved by God, to be children of God. Second Corinthians, Paul summarized it a little differently. He said that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And that's our hope. As we read of the blessing and the covenant that God made with Abraham, this blessing that was then passed on to Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's sons, and we've witnessed it make its work its way through Genesis, we know that the blessing given to Abraham is the gospel, the good news that it comes to us by faith in Jesus Christ. Creation, blessing, and then there's one more word that I want to unpack a little bit this morning, and that's the word promise. If you remember how the book of Genesis ends from two Sundays ago, we have near the end the words of Joseph. As he's approaching his death, he reminds his brothers in 
Genesis 50, about God's promise to Abraham. Listen to these words from Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. It says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land that he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And that word promise is used quite a few times throughout Genesis, pretty much always reminding us that God will do what he has said. That God will follow through on what he has promised to follow through on. Maybe not in our timing, maybe not in the ways that we would choose it, but God will do what he has said. And so as we think about this promise, it really leads us back before Joseph and before Abraham in the story, back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have rebelled against God. God pronounces his judgment, his curse on the serpent who had deceived the woman. And in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14, I'll read uh, verses 14 and 15. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. God speaking to the serpent. Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And then listen to verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Strife, basically. I will put strife or enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and hers. And he, speaking of the offspring of the woman. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. Rather than blessing, we see here God pronounce a curse. Cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. But then he also makes a promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head. God makes a promise. And while I doubt that Adam and Eve had really any clue of the beauty and the power of that promise in the moment, it was a world-changing promise. In that very moment, God declared war on the serpent and he began his plan to restore and redeem all that was broken. And in Revelation chapter 20, you don't have to turn there, but in Revelation chapter 20, we're given a glimpse again of the end of the story for the serpent. The serpent will be cast into the lake of fire, no more deceiving, no more evil, no more suffering. When Jesus overcame the tempter in the wilderness and lived a perfect life and died in the place of sinners and then rose victoriously over the grave, the head of Satan was crushed. The end of the story is written and Christ will return one day to finish him off once and for all. That's the promise. That's the the central promise of Genesis. Everything else that we see in Genesis is the working out of that central promise. And it's really the central promise of the scriptures. That Christ is the victor. That he wins That all who are in him, all who have faith in Christ, receive the benefits of his victory. We will be with him and he will be our God. 
There's one other aspect of God's promise that I think became so clear in our time in Genesis. And I know I've had this conversation with many of you, and that's the promise of God for sinners. We have heard over and over the story of how sin has wrecked human lives in Genesis. Abel murdered by his brother Cain. Noah getting drunk and passing out naked. Abraham abandoning his wife to save himself. Lot's daughters getting him drunk and using him to get pregnant. Jacob manipulating Esau out of his birthright, deceiving his father into giving him the blessing. Jacob sleeping with the wrong sister on his wedding night. Rachel stealing her father's idols. Simeon and Levi murdering a whole community of men to avenge their sister's rape. Joseph sold by his brothers into slavery. Judah hiring a prostitute who turns out to be his daughter-in-law. Of course, there's more, right? I think we get the point. Genesis is littered with stories of sin and sinners. Just like our lives, just like our families, our neighborhoods, our church, example after example of the devastation of sin. And and we find ourselves at the end of the journey and, and essentially everyone that we might have been tempted to look up to and admire has proven themselves unworthy. But that's the good news. That despite the absolute train wreck of humanity that we have witnessed in Genesis, God remained faithful. God remained laser focused on his plan to save and redeem. Even the darkest moments didn't deter God from his plan to fulfill his promise to save the world. And so if God's grace was sufficient for Abraham and for Noah and for Lot and for Jacob and for Judah and for all the others, then God's grace is sufficient for you and for your sin. And we are invited to repent of our sin because the story is littered with sinners who repented. We're invited to repent and to believe the gospel, to believe the promise that God will do what he has said. In spite of our sin, in spite of the messiness of this world, he always has and he always will keep his promises. And so we are free to simply repent of our sin and believe the gospel and rest in him. His grace is sufficient for me and it's sufficient for you. And here's what is maybe most wild about this whole thing. That God welcomes us, he invites us, he delivers us into his redemptive story. Into his mission to save the world from sin. He invites us into his plan to save and to set free. We are invited to join Jesus on his mission. Genesis isn't just a history textbook. It's a carefully curated account that brings us to Jesus and then invites us to join him just like Abraham did, just like Jacob did, just like Joseph did, to join him in what he is doing as he works out his plan to save and redeem. Whatever your story, whatever 
your history, whatever brings you here this morning, whatever pain or struggle or doubts or sin, Jesus can use you as part of his mission. So let's pray and let's give thanks to God for this story of creation and blessing and promise and ask that the words of Genesis would continue to shape us as we follow Jesus together. God, we have been on a wild ride in Genesis. I've said several times that if, if we were you, we would have just given up. We would have walked away, washed our hands. Uh, we, we know, we recognize that you had every right to just walk away. But that's not who you are. You are faithful. You love us with unfailing love. Love that sent the true and better Adam, the true and better Noah, the true and better Abraham, the true and better Jacob, the true and better Judah, true and better Joseph. Your great love sent the one to whom this entire book was pointing up the mountain as our substitute in our place for our sin. Your faithful love has done all of this. And so we worship you today. We repent of our sin and our doubt and our worship and, and chasing after of other things. We, we worship you alone because you alone are worthy of worship. We pray that you would take the time that we've spent in Genesis and use it to continually lead us to repentance, to finding our hope and our life in your son Jesus alone, and then to join him on his mission. Lord, we can't understand how you would invite sinners like us to be a part of what you're doing, but we're so grateful that you do. So may your word accomplish all that you desire in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.